0: Raise your hand if you've ever read through the whole book of Revelation. Anybody ever read through? Okay, a few of you. All right. Uh, raise your hand if um, you ever read any portion of Revelation and it confused you or scared you. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, raise your hand if you finished Revelation with more questions than when you started. All right. Um, <laughs> that's uh, crazy. Uh, raise your hand. If you are hoping for some clarity about revelation in this series all right good we're all hopefully on the same page there uh, here's the deal with um, with revelation we could parade uh, all 31 pastors from the 31 different churches in El Dorado up on the stage this morning and we could all ask them what is the book of Revelation about and we would get 31 different answers now that there might be some things that um, that, that we could, we could um, agree on, but there's gonna be much more in each person's interpretation of Revelation to challenge than to confirm. And so it, it is true that Revelation was meant to be a mystery to the people of other nations. In particular, the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem and Israel at the time, and forcing Roman um, ideals onto the Jewish people. Revelation was supposed to be a mystery to those people, but it was not supposed to be a mystery to the Jewish people, and especially not to the first followers of, of Jesus. And so pay attention to that. Revelation was not supposed to be a mystery most of us read Revelation, and, and even if we've never read it before, never looked at it before, we go into it thinking, this is going to be weird. <laughs> like, this is a mystery. I don't know if I'm going to get it. Like, I'm going to try. And probably at least some of you have attempted to read Revelation, and you've got a few chapters in. I mean, maybe you made it through the first chapter, second chapter. You get through the seven churches, and then it gets weird. And you're just like, I'm done. I'm I'm out. When John wrote the book of Revelation, and then this was a a letter, it was written as a letter that was supposed to be shared with the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so that's why John wrote it. He was writing it to Jewish Christians in a heavily persecuted part of the world. And John wrote Revelation to be understood, not to be hidden, at least from the Jewish people. You had to to first have some Jewish history. You had to understand some Jewish history. And you had to recognize Jesus as God's promised king. And if you'd had those two things, Revelation was not a mystery to you. As you read it and you read about the seven-headed dragon that comes up out of the sea that everybody freaks out about, who's that? The people of John's day would have understood what he was saying. So Revelation was not intended to be a mystery, And so here's some things to keep in mind as uh, we're reading Revelation, some ground rules for reading Revelation. And, and here's the first one. Revelation uh, does not hide a secret predictive code that we need to uncover. Okay? So if anybody comes to you and talks about Revelation as though there's something to understand that's hidden in the text, and if you just have the right knowledge or God gives you the right insight, you can understand it and you can figure it out and you can know what the secret stuff is in Revelation. Just whoop! Just turn the hearing aids down. Don't pay attention. It is not a secret predictive code of what's to come. Uh, the second thing. About Revelation illusions or mysteries that we that we read about things that you the things in Revelation that you read and you go I just don't I don't understand that it doesn't make sense What do the ten horns mean on the Like what is the lady riding the dragon? How is that possible? I don't get it Illusions are mysteries in the book of Revelation They were tied to real images or situations or ideas that the Jewish people would have been very very familiar with We're not and I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but John wrote this book a couple thousand years ago when the time was completely different. And he wrote it to people who, who didn't just know about the Jewish people. And, and, and really, you know, we kind of know about the Jewish people, but we are not Jewish. We did not grow up in the Middle East. We did not have the same understanding. We have not had the same experiences. And so there is a disconnect there. But for John's first readers, they would have understood the images, the allusions, the, the, the mysterious content there. And John's, uh, the people, uh, the first followers of Jesus would have understood that even at a deeper level because they already believed that Jesus was the promised king. N- number three, Revelation's meaning for us, you and I today, must be anchored in John's meaning For them, like those to whom it was originally written, because John wrote it for a specific purpose at a specific time in history and to convey a specific message. And so when we read Revelation, we have to understand that John was writing it to a people in a specific time and a specific reason. We don't have the benefit of that. We are not living under persecution in the first century. We're not scared every morning when we get up that we might die because of our faith in Jesus. And so there are things about Revelation that we just don't get. And so here's my warning to you um, today and, and every day. If you hear that someone has Uncovered, or discovered, or obtained the secret code, uh, or found a never-before-seen key to understanding revelation. Run the other way. Don't pay attention to it. Don't listen to it. Don't entertain it. And and I, I man, I really I struggled with this. I wasn't going to do this. There there are Christian teachers and preachers out there who have some really good stuff, some good, solid Bible teaching and doctrinal understanding that is, that is good and sound. And some of those people can also be completely out in left field when it comes to revelation, in my opinion. And, and I don't want to really make anybody mad, but I'll just say it this way. I don't listen to John Hagee. I don't listen to him. I don't pay attention to him. That man cannot seem to get off figuring out what Revelation is all about and when it's going to happen. And I don't know how many times he's said, it's coming. Be ready. Every time you turn him on the TV, there's a big, he's got some big graph behind him and he's figured it out and he's understood like, like he knows some stuff. He's got some good stuff off, off base, in my opinion, when it, when it comes here. Here's why I think that's true. Because John wrote Revelation to uncover and to explain and to give hope and some level of peace to people who were undergoing extreme persecution. And so too many people in today's world— they treat Revelation like it's a, a long lost treasure map uncovered in the back of a picture up in Grandpa's attic. And if we could just, we could just put the pieces together, if we can just avoid the, the booby traps, if, if we can just uncover or figure out the ciphers, then we'll get to X whatever x is and we'll have this bit of knowledge or understanding about the future that will give us a secret code to heaven or to missing out on whatever revelation says is is coming so many people treat revelation like that today but to John's early readers to the people who the letter of revelation was written to revelation brought comfort it brought peace and hope to those people who daily faced death because they followed Jesus. And I was trying to think, how, could we, how can we understand what really this letter did for people? And here's the only thing I could come up with, and I have no firsthand knowledge of this, except what I've seen in movies, and if you see it in a movie, it's got to be true, right? And so um, here's, you'll probably get this metaphor, this idea. In almost every uh, war-type movie, and I haven't seen it yet, but probably in the new Maverick Top Gun movie. It's probably true. I don't know. Uh, whatever soldier is in the movie, they always have a picture of home, right? They've got a picture of their mom or their, their girlfriend or their wife or their kids or, or even just a picture of their, you know, their farm or their home or whatever, and, and every day as they face the possibility of death in a far away land and far away from the people that they love, there's this picture that gives them some, some hope, that gives them some comfort, that reminds them of a better time and a better place and gives them something to long for, to get back to, to fight, to get back to that place. But if I take my picture and I show it to somebody else in the same situation, they're not going to have the same feelings as I do, right? To them, it's just a house. It's just a lady. It's just some kids. And so it's very personal. And, and so to, to non-Christians, revelation should be confusing. And it should seem crazy as you read some of the just far out kind of things that John writes about. But to Christians, it should be comfort. And, and this, this is not a word that we typically associate with revelation, right? Like it, it, it should bring us comfort. There should be hope in it. When we read revelation, even if we don't completely understand every little weird kind of thing that we find in there, we should come away with it with, with hope. Like, I understand what this is pointing to, and I know where this is going. And so here's how we're going to approach revelation um, for the purposes of this series, Revelation is not a book about when Jesus will will come back. Okay, just just ball that up and throw it in the trash can of your mind it is not a book about when jesus will come back and so if you're flipping through stations on the tv or you're listening to somebody on the radio and they start talking about revelation as though it's some time code and you can figure out if you get all the numbers right about when jesus is coming back turn the channel it is not a book about when Jesus will come back. There is no secret code. There is no hidden message. There is no, and, and hear me on this, there is no date or time or year or era that is uncovered in the book of Revelation that tells us when Jesus is coming back. And I know that because the rest of the Bible, Jesus himself says, nobody knows the time except for God the Father. So stop trying to find the time. It's ridiculous. What Revelation is, is a book about why Jesus will come back. That's what it is. We look at it with, so we approach it with, with like, we're just, ah, I'm just scared and it freaks me out and I don't like it. It's a book about why Jesus is coming back. That's what it is. And to begin to understand why Jesus will come again, we have to start at um, the beginning. We have to start at the beginning. And, and not at the beginning of Revelation. Not in Revelation 1, 1 but in the beginning of everything. Because today we're going to see the way it was, the way it is, and the way it, it will be. We're going to look at those three things today. And so we're going to jump in to Genesis Yes, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. Because if you're going to understand Revelation, you got to understand Genesis 1-1. They're completely tied together. So let's look at that. In the beginning, and this is the beginning of everything, right? Not the beginning of Revelation, the beginning of everything. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, Um, By the way, just because there's some confusion about this, uh, what is a sphere? It's a form, right? A sphere is a form. Here we're told, he created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form. There was no form. It was void and darkness. Okay, without form, void, and darkness. Anybody want to sign up for that? I don't like I'm not going there. Dreams sometimes are without form and void and dark and we wake up freaked out we call them nightmares. We don't like that. That's what we're that's what we're talking about here. It was without form void darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of The waters. Now, there is some confusion about this because we read these words, and in our mind, we go, Oh, well, darkness was over the face of the deep. That must be a thing. And so there must have been something there when God created it. And if the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, what do we think of? Oh, it was just like the ocean or whatever, like just water out there. And then God took the water and he made something out of, of the water. But, but let me e- explain um, this to you. Because in, in my opinion, that this is a metaphorical writing that the first people would have understood. Anytime you read in, in Scripture about um, the waters or the sea or the deep, all of those um, word pictures or word ideas would cause the reader to think about like these things, uh, danger, unknown, fear. So for the Jewish person, when they talked about the ocean, they were talking about this great unknown thing. It was un tapped it was untamed it was dangerous let me let me break it down because like we got like millennials and all kinds of young people I don't know what comes after millennial uh, but other generations of people so let me break it down even easier Um, Moana the Disney movie right Moana uh, her parents and family are scared of the water it's dangerous and if you go out on the water you're going to die that's that's the thing that's how the Jewish reader would have, would have read this. When they talk about the water, it's dangerous, it's unknown, it's freaky. Like, don't go near it. There's reason to be terrified of the deep and water. So there are always references to those things. And so before God... These two things, there was um, before God and there was after God in Genesis chapter 1. And so before God, there was nothing. There was no form. It was unknown. It was dark. And the the Spirit of God hovered over this nothingness, this terrifying blackness and darkness and void that was nothing there. And and it it just blows your mind if you try and think about it or process it process it too much. It was unknown. It was terrifying. And so the rest of chapter one explains what happens to this unknown um, nothingness after God. So we're going to look at what happens in the rest of um, chapter one. The first thing that happens is that God brings order. God brings order out of the chaos. He makes evening and he makes morning and he sets boundaries and he puts things in place and he tells the animals and the trees. He says, reproduce after your kind. So there's order that God brings to this huge nothing void of darkness. Second thing God does is God gives purpose to each of these created things Purpose is woven into them to reproduce, to give light, to provide sustenance for others, or in the case of the water, to, to create a space for creatures to flourish. And so God creates, he separates the water, and he, and, he, and he has dry land, and he's like, okay, I'm going to put animals in these things, and, and the land and the, and the sea, you're supposed to provide a purpose for these things to grow and to, to flourish, And and the other thing that God does is God gives approval. He gives approval. Each day, God says at the end of his creation that it is good. You read down through the six days of creation, the five days of creation, the first one, and, and it says God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. He gives his approval. But then after he creates mankind, the pinnacle of his creation. There are three distinctions that set mankind apart from every other thing that God had created. And so let's look at those. There's three things. First, God blesses mankind. God did not bless any other creature in the world. None other of his creation did he he bless. And so this is a separate thing. There's a connection that God has with humanity. Secondly, God confirms a hierarchy. And so God creates animals and plants before he creates mankind, but in the end, when he's giving food to his creation, he sets mankind apart first, and he says, to you I give all of the green plants for food, and then he says, oh yeah, to the animals, you get green plants for food as well, and so God sets a hierarchy. And then finally, God is pleased. God's pleased. With the order and the purpose and the plan of his creation. He steps back and he looks at all of this stuff that he'd just done, how everything is intricately woven together and fits together, and how these plants need these animals to survive, and these animals only feed on these plants. And so everything is in this perfect unity. It has purpose, it's following its plan, and there's order to everything that God has. Created And so he says of his creation on the sixth day, after he creates mankind, that it was very good. That's how he ends it. And that's the end of chapter 1. Now, we go into chapter 2. And we're given a couple other bits of information that we'll need to understand Revelation. The first one is the day of rest. So, um, Genesis 2 talks first about this day of rest, that on the seventh day, God rested from all that he had done. It's kind of like, um, okay, Jim Clements back there on the camera. Jim is a a painter. uh, I shouldn't say. Jim is a really, really good painter, Uh, very, uh, very talented artist. When Jim gets done with a painting, and I'm assuming, I don't know what you do. Maybe you dance a jig or I don't know, turn on rush or something when you're done. But when, when I picture Jim finishing a painting and, and taking his, his brush or his little scraper thing and, and he sets it down and he's like, okay, it's done. He's finished. I'm paused. That's it for this. And so, so Genesis chapter two starts out saying, look, God, God paused. He looked at everything he had done and he said, it's perfect. It doesn't need anything else. Everything is just the way it should be. And, and, and the second thing that, that happens in the rest of Genesis chapter 2 is we see the writer go back in time. So in chapter 1, we get day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6 of creation, and we're told exactly what happens. And then you read Genesis chapter 2, and it says God um, has this place, And he uh, springs up all of the trees and the animals, and he he puts Adam there. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought Adam was already created at the end of chapter 1. This doesn't make any sense. Well, this is another pattern we're going to see in Revelation. The writer pauses, and he explains what God did on the sixth day of creation. Okay? so. All of these days of creation, we get to the sixth day, and then God goes, or the the writer goes, okay, now I'm going to explain to you in greater detail what happened on the sixth day. So here's what happens on the, the sixth day. God creates a place within the place. God creates a place within the place he had created. It was a special place. The whole world was perfect. But in this specific place, God lived in unity and community with humanity. Now, now the Bible calls this the garden. It it was a place of perfection within a perfect place. A perfect place, God and his creation existed together in unity, and it was perfect. (laughs) Part of the perfection of the Garden of Eden was that both humanity and God chose to be in unity with one another. And so there's this beautiful balance where where God comes and he walks among his creation in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve come out and join him. And they walk through and you just can picture like God going, so uh, what did you do today? How was your day? What's going on? And he has this conversation as they're just strolling in the evening and talking about all the things that is going on. And, and Adam's like, look, this animal um, had, had a baby and it was really cool and it was awesome. And we discovered this thing that we hadn't seen before and, and this is going on and that. And they have this back and forth conversation, this beautiful relational moment. And it's like that, until it isn't anymore. So so God fills the garden with trees that bear fruit, and of every one of the trees in the garden, he says there are two things about every tree. They were pleasing to the eye, and they were good for food. Um, By the way, there's been already in the message a couple places where it's been um, numbers, one, two, three, whatever. As you read Revelation, you're going to find that. There's seven bowls and seven trumpets and there's seven, like, like there's just numbers all over in the, in the book of Revelation. Um, don't get too caught up in that because I already told you it's not a secret predictive code. It's just a way to order things and it, and it makes sense and it would have made sense to Jewish readers. So two things about these trees. They were pleasing to the eye. They looked good. The fruit looked good and it was good to eat. Um, let me give you an example Uh, Dragon fruit does not look good, nor, in my opinion, does it taste good. So probably that was not in the Garden of Eden. I I don't know. Uh, Just don't quote me on that. Uh, John Hagel be mad at me for saying that. Um, But every tree in the garden, it was pleasing to the eye, it was good for food. Then we're told that there were two special trees in the garden. One was called the tree of life, and the other was called the tree of the knowledge of good and, evil. and God gives humanity one rule, and, and we all know it. He says you can eat from any tree in the garden. They all looked good. They all tasted good. But you can eat from any tree in the garden you want except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree or you will die. Now remember, every tree, every fruit tree in the garden looked good and tasted good. So the tree, from the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't bad, it was just banned. There was nothing bad about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was just that God said, here's the rule. And and I think part of the reason the Garden of Eden was a perfect place was because God didn't create robots who just followed everything that he said and didn't argue and didn't think and didn't question And so God gives people will to do the things they want to do, and he hopes that they choose relationship and this back and forth and this unity with him, but he gives them an out. Let me tell you, if you don't give somebody an out, that's called control. And in in our day and, and age, that is not a good thing. Not a good thing of so many marriages that end because one of them says, this one just controlled everything, every penny, every thought, everything that I did. God wasn't about that. He wasn't about controlling people. He wanted to live in unity with them. And so this wasn't a trick on God's part. It was a test. Will humanity choose to follow my rule, to be in unity with me? Will they follow my definition of good and evil, or will they decide that they know better and they ought to be the ones to decide what is good and evil for themselves? And so this is how, this is how he created it. It's how it was, and it was how he created it. It was a place of perfection, of unity, of balance, of love, of peace. It was perfect. But it didn't last, and so uh, by Genesis chapter three, like it all falls apart. Before chapter three, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear, there's no pain, there's no worries. And to express this, the, the writer says that Adam and Eve were naked before God and each other. And and what that means, well, the idea that that's supposed to convey for us, that is that nothing was hidden, everything, literally and metaphorically. Everything was exposed, not just to God, but to everybody else, Adam and and Eve. There was no shame because no one had anything to hide. That's why humanity could enjoy unity with God because there wasn't any sin. There was nothing that the people felt shame about. And, and I don't know about your life, but in my life, there are things that I have done and seen and thought and said that I would rather keep hidden, that I, that I don't want exposed to, to everybody. And so this was the relationship between humanity and God. It was perfect because there was nothing hidden, no shame, no fear, no sin. That's why humanity could enjoy that unity with God. But after they eat, ate, ate the banned fruit, there's something really incredible that happens. Humanity responds differently to God, but God doesn't respond differently to humanity. Did you, did, have you ever caught that and you read? So, Adam and Eve, they eat the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that was banned. And then it says in the cool of the evening, like, you, like this is just God's normal everyday kind of routine, God comes in to this place of perfection where every day he comes to walk with Adam and Eve and talk with them and, and just have relational conversation with them and it's all great and he gets there and Adam and Eve are not there, like they're nowhere to be found. What is going on? Adam and Eve hide. They felt exposed. They were afraid, but God acts towards them exactly the same way that he had before. I think that says a lot about who God is. Now, there was betrayal. They broke the rule. So there has to be discipline there, right? And, and, and so there's a curse, There's increased pain. There's relational tension. The work that once brought Adam and Eve um, fulfillment is now going to be frustrating to them. But the greatest problem was not these three hung up on the curses and the pain and all that kind of stuff. I think the greatest challenge, the greatest problem for Adam and Eve was that they could no longer enjoy the community and unity with God that they had in the garden. They lost that. They got kicked out. Before their sin, Adam and Eve enjoyed this unity with God in purity and perfection. And they could enjoy that unity because there was no sin, because they were perfect and pure. But now, being close to God meant death because of their impurity. So consider this. Genesis tells us that God places a cherubim, angel being, and a flaming sword that moves back and forth across the entrance to the garden. And, and I don't know about you, but I used to think that that was um, like, like God was keeping them out. Like, I'm angry with you. You are never coming in here again. Like You're done. I've changed my mind, though. Here's what I think happened. God knew that if Adam and Eve or any of their offspring ever entered his presence, entered into that place of perfection where God existed in unity with his creation, they would die. They would die because they are now impure and he is holy. I think about it this way. The sun is good for us. We need the sun or we die. But if you get too close to the sun, you die. You die. And we don't blame the son and go, darn you, son, you should take it easy on us. We well, go, this is the way it is. And it's that way with, with God. God's purity, his holiness is consuming. And if we get too close to him in an impure state, we can't ha- we die. We can't be in that presence. And so God put this cherubim and this flaming sword at the entrance to the garden to protect them out of his love, not punish them because he was angry. And this is how it still is today. We are outside of that unity and community with God. Uh, so um, Cain kills Abel. Lamech And just a few chapters later, he acquires a bunch of wives like cattle. He possesses them. And so we start to see one human taking control over other humans, holding them down, putting them down. And so by chapter 6 of Genesis, God, like, wipes the slate clean. He starts over with Noah. But that doesn't last very long either, right? Noah does fine as long as there's no chance for him to sin. But as soon as there's a chance for him to sin, he's done. He's out. It's over. And we follow in Adam and Eve and Cain and Noah's footsteps. God created it to be good, and we crashed it. (laughs) We crashed it. And we continue to crash it today. And and so this leads us finally to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus, the king, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Why was Revelation written? To show his servants the things that must soon take place. They were supposed to understand it. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who then bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus the king, even to all that he saw. So he's saying, everything that I saw, I'm telling you. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, that's you, and then who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So John tells us that this revelation is about the person of Jesus the king. He's the key And he's also the king. And we're also told that Revelation was given to John for the purpose of showing Jesus' followers the things that must soon take place. It's supposed to reveal something. Not hide it. It's supposed to reveal it. To expose it. And so we've talked about the way it was when he created it. And we've talked about a way that it is after Adam and Eve's and our sin as we crash it. And now John is going to tell us about the way it will be as God begins his work of curing it. This is how God will set everything right and will get us back to the beginning when heaven and humanity are in perfect unity. John then, he says he's going to bear witness to the words of God about the person of Jesus, the king, and John says, I'm going to tell the truth. What I see, I'm going to tell you. And, and, and I don't know if you understand this, but when you look at heavenly things, it is difficult to put those in earthly terms. It's hard to see. In fact, Paul says, uh, I knew a man who was caught up into the, the third heaven. I think it was Paul. I, I think he's just saying it with somebody else. Caught up into third heaven, he says he saw things there that were too wonderful to be explained like you can't put them into words. And so John is like, he's like, just look, um, what I see, I'm, I'm going to tell you. And it might not make any sense. It might, be cra- it might seem crazy, but I'm just telling you w- what I'm seeing. And so we're going to see that over and over in Revelation. Um, in fact, we're gonna, John is going to hear something, and then when he turns to look, what he sees is going to be completely different from what you expected from what he heard. And so we just see this back and forth kind of thing. It's really, really weird. And so um, John, John says um, that we're gonna, we're gonna get back. He's gonna bear witness to the words of God about the person of Jesus the King, and he's gonna tell us um, the truth. And so we're gonna kind of end where, where we started. Revelation is not a book about when Jesus will come back. It is a book about why Jesus will come back. And the reason that Jesus is going to come back is to set everything back to the way it was when it was perfect. Revelation, the end of Revelation, what we're going to find is a recreation of Genesis 1 in the beginning. Where humanity lives in perfect unity and community and relationship with God. Where there is nothing hidden. Where everything is exposed. Where we can be... Real and honest with each other because there's nothing to hide. And it's going to be a place of perfection. That is what the book of Revelation is about. That's what we're going to look at for the next seven weeks. And I hope that you'll join me on this journey. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who reveals to his people. In fact, Romans says that you have revealed yourself to us in all of the creation. How can we look at the stars in the sky or the rings in in a tree? How can we look at the, the way that insects and animals and people interact and not see purpose and meaning in the creation? You, you have not been a God like the, the gods that people worshiped, a God that is, is hidden and secretive, and you don't know what he expects, and, and one, day, one day that God might accept you, and the next day might kill you. You are not a God like that. You lay it all out for us. You reveal yourself to us and even the tiniest things. And so God, we we pray throughout this series as we look at Revelation that you would give us eyes to see, to see the reality of what John is is writing, to see the future and to have hope in, in what John is talking about, that you would give us ears to hear, not just the words on the page, but you give us ears to hear what John is really telling us, what all of this is pointing to, this great day of unity and purity and community with you. And that, God, you would give us a a heart like Revelation 1, uh, 2, 3 talk about, a heart that is open, that we would be blessed because we're hearing it, we would be blessed when we read it, that we would be blessed when we put it into practice in our daily lives. And so, God, um, just thank you for this opportunity to go through this book to see you and your son in it um, and, and help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name.